Welcome to Don't Box Me In on TalkZone.com, the show that features conversations with people from all walks of life, talking about their extraordinary experiences and inspirational messages. Now, here's your host, Lana Reed. Hello, hello, and hey there. I have got another interesting week of Don't Box Me In. Today I've got the pleasure of speaking with director of Truth Be Told and founder of Smithcraft Productions, Mr. Gregorio Smith. Mr. Smith has put out a very intriguing film about the Jehovah's Witness religion. And according to reports put out by Jehovah's Witness, there are approximately 7.53 million members actively involved in preaching. And in 2012, it was reported that Jehovah's Witness members clocked in a total of more than 1.7 billion hours of preaching. The United States has the largest membership, followed by Brazil and Mexico. Gregorio's film, Truth Be Told, digs into some of the discrepancies of the religion, some of the harms it might cause the individual, and some of the secrets the JW organization has that the general population tends to overlook. And with that, I'd like to hurry up and welcome Mr. Smith to the show because I have lots and lots of questions to ask. Gregorio, welcome to Don't Box Me In today. Greetings. Thanks for having me, Lana. Thank you. Thank you so much for uh, making time for me today, especially since you're on the road there. I appreciate it so much. Uh, My first first question... um, uh, this whole matter of Jehovah's Witness religion, lifestyle, and culture is something you have first-hand knowledge of, correct? That is correct. I was born and raised in the religion. Oh. And oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I, I was. I was. Finish your thought. No, I was born and raised in, in the religion, so I think that it's a singular experience to be raised in it as a child because. Through the preaching work, a lot of people may convert being a Jehovah's Witness as an adult, but when you're a child, I think that that impact is uh, compounded because there really is no choice in the matter as a kid. You know, so there's no choice in, let's say, how you worship, or there's no choice in being allowed to uh, participate in extracurricular activities at school. There's no choice in celebrating holidays or not. So. As I said, uh, taken uh, collectively as a the childhood experience of being raised in it uh, is a bit more harrowing than, let's say, an adult who converted to be a witness. Got you. Now, before we, we really get rolling with this whole uh, interview, some of us are, our, our knowledge of Jehovah's Witnesses is very limited to, quote-unquote, those people who knock on your door on, on Saturday. So if you could... Right. Um, just kind of briefly tell us exactly what are the sun- fundamentals and principles of the whole religion. Uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> there, uh, I guess the technical term is eschatological type of, uh, or millennialist beliefs, where they believe that the end of the world is nigh, basically, mm-hmm, and that mm-hmm. uh, Christ returned uh, took a, uh, his earthly throne back in 1914, which signified the impending Armageddon, where God is going to basically destroy all the wicked governments and 
uh, society of mankind, the system of things as it was referred to when we were kids. Well, as it's referred to in general, I should say. And that all that's going to be restored with God's original intention, which was an earthly paradise, uh, where people don't grow old and there's no war and there's no disease, no hunger, and kids get to play with wild animals all day. Hmm. Sounds wonderful. Um, but if I recall correctly, um, like I said in the opening, there's a, at least 7 million members or more uh, JW members. But if I remember reading correctly somewhere, Jehovah's Witness only believe that a certain amount of you will actually, quote unquote, go on to heaven, per se. That is correct. They believe that only 144,000. Uh, select faithful will make it into heaven while the rest get to enjoy eternal life in paradise. Hmm. Interesting. And um, going back to your, your introduction to the whole world of Jehovah's Witness at an early age, was it your parents or I'm assuming that were involved? Uh, well, I think the impetus in my family was my mother. Uh, okay. I was born in 1974 in Brooklyn, New York. And mm-hmm. back in the 70s, New York was really, really bad. I, I often tell people if you ever saw the movie Death Wish with Charles mm-hmm. Bronson, it actually painted a pretty accurate picture of what New York was like in the 70s. It was uh, a pretty bad time, pretty dreadful time to live in a city. So I guess the witnesses came a knocking at some point and, um, late 73, and they presented this option of, hey, uh, you can continue with this wicked system of things. You know, we see the crime and corruption and the debauchery, uh, the state of debauchery that New York was in, particularly in the 70s, or uh, you can join us and you can be with these smiling people in paradise mm-hmm. and your kids will be uh, saved from this wicked world and they can be in this paradise as well. So it's a pretty, it's a pretty tempting offer for mm-hmm. a young love. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, when, uh, presented, um, well, a, a young mother in desperate circumstances, uh, and in a, it's a very, um, hard scrabble condition in New York back then. So, and that's a whole, I think, the reason that the images are so powerful is because, as the best propaganda does, propaganda, it triggers an emotion, not a rational reaction. Mm-hmm. For someone that's in a somewhat weak or a desperate or otherwise despairing situation, it's like, yeah, they are going to, those images and that message is going to resonate that much more uh, mm-hmm. with themselves. Okay. So, um, at that time, your mother converted. Um, I guess there's a whole, uh, like a baptism process. Did you? Correct. As well, uh, did you get, uh, since she had you at that time, I'm assuming, did you get baptized as well? I did not get baptized, no. Uh, one, I, just to be clear, I witnesses, children or babies, I should say, typically aren't baptized within the witness religion. Uh, their view is that a child should be old enough to understand exactly the commitments that they're getting into before mm-hmm. they truly commit to the faith. That said, um, they, 
I, they don't discourage children from getting baptized. I mean, that could be anywhere from age eight and up. Um, okay. So it's not like they wait for someone to uh, get to an age of consent, let's say 16 or 17. It's like, no, you're pressured as a kid from like eight, nine, ten years old that, yeah, you should be baptized. And I'm sure that uh, if we dig deep enough, we can find, uh, confirm, confirm that there were baptisms at 10 years old, 11 years old. I mean, I was there. I mean, uh, when I was 10, I felt the pressure to get baptized. So, uh, so they don't baptize babies, but they're not entirely opposed to baptizing children. Put it like that. Oh, okay, understood. Now, um, since you were involved with the whole lifestyle, religion, and culture at such a young age, tell me, like, what is your most vivid member, uh, memory or striking memory about the whole thing in your childhood, if you can recall something or some things, perhaps? The most striking memory? Mm-hmm. It, it, something positive, negative, or it doesn't matter? Negative. What, what, what comes to mind to you first about being involved with Jehovah's Witness at a young age? First thing that comes to mind, and I think a lot of witnesses, uh, people that were raised witnesses can relate to this, is a sense of lost time. Mm-hmm. Because your whole life was very structured. You go to school from, let's say, 9 to 3 o'clock or 8 to 3 o'clock, then most witnesses, like me, you were, went home directly. And mm-hmm. either it was going to be a meeting night, so there were three meetings a week. Um, one on Tuesday, for me, it was one on Tuesday nights, which was an hour. Thursday night, two hours. And Sunday afternoon was two hours. But the days in between were spent preparing for those meetings. So although the meetings might have been about two hours, you might have spent two hours or more the night before preparing for the meetings. So it didn't leave a lot of time to just be a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was... So let's say on a Monday night, I wasn't, excuse me, let's say a Tuesday night, that was a meeting night for us. You get home from school at 3 o'clock, and you have about maybe an hour or two before it's okay, start getting your Kingdom Hall material ready, and you're throwing on a suit, and you're heading right back out to sit in a two-hour meeting mm. and not getting home till maybe 10 o'clock or 10.30. Which, looking back, I mean, no kid should be awake <laughs> that at, late at the, yes. on a on a weeknight. So, I think so. That sense of lost time, and I think that there's a certain stress that comes with that. I mean, we often think that stress means that you're overstimulated, but being understimulated can be just as stressful. So, not cultivating a young child's mind with art science, trips to museums, trips to the symphony. Uh, there wasn't much of that for us as kids, frankly, because there wasn't the resources, the time, mm-hmm. or the money. Most of that mm-hmm. was spent on the religion. Okay. So, reflecting on my my own personal childhood, you know, it's it's, you know, like riding your bike after school or Saturday morning cartoons or participating in some sort of sport after school or something, you didn't have those options? That is correct. I mean, and in fairness, some witness parents were more zealous than others. Okay. So you had some parents that were moderate that maybe didn't 
spoon feed the religion as much or crack the whip as much with the religion as other parents. But for the parents that really leaned into it to the point where it was just borderline or frankly was abuse, uh, child abuse, mm-hmm. um, that wasn't discouraged exactly by the organization. So, I mean, one other memory that jumps out to me is I was, remember I was 12 years old, and I was studying with one of the ministerial servants. Uh, they were the equivalent of deacons within, okay. uh, within the Kingdom Hall. And uh, he got wind from someone, maybe it was my mother, that I played with Transformer toys. Mm-hmm. Um, and remember back in 1985, 86, those were the most popular toys on the planet. So uh, he, we do our Bible study one day, and then he asked me to turn to a certain chapter. I think it was somewhere in Colossians. And it was a scripture that said something to the effect about uh, Lucifer uh, transformed into Satan the devil. Mm-hmm. And he looks at me, and he says that, well, you, you understand what that means, don't you? And mm-hmm. I'm just totally perplexed. I'm like, no, I don't understand. He goes, well, Satan the devil was the first Transformer. Therefore, playing with Transformers is ungodly, it's demonic, it's just something that you shouldn't do. So, <laughs> wow. I mean, I look back on it now and it's, it's laughable. And usually when I share that story with people that weren't raised witnesses, I mean, they, they laugh as well. But when you're 12 years old and... You, know, you have an adult that's basically in a position of authority. I mean, you're going to lend them whatever credibility, whatever credence, and when they take advantage of it or otherwise abuse it with just nonsense like that, I mean, yeah. as I said, you, we can we can laugh at it, but at the same time, I look back and I think that that again. I mean, not every not all child abuse is physical. I mean, that's yeah. something that stuck with me. And, yeah. you know, we're talking about 25 years down the line. It's a memory that I really wish I didn't have. So even when the Transformers movies came out a couple of years ago, I wasn't able to enjoy it as much as I would have. It's <laughs> not for that stigma that was attached to it uh, almost 30 years ago. Wow, that is a lot of mental weight to put on a young young person. A lot of, a lot of weight. Yeah, yeah, but that's, that's, that is something that they trade in, though, which is mental, intellectual, and spiritual intimidation. And uh, it runs the gamut in ages, uh, cradle to grave. <laughs> wow. Well, Gregorio, hold on for a second. We're going to take a break right now, uh, but I'm, I'm looking forward to speaking some more about this right after the break. Welcome back to Don't Box Me In on TalkZone.com. Here's your host, Lana Reed. Hello, hello, hello. Today I am with uh, the director of Truth Be Told, and we're talking about uh, Jehovah's Witness. And before the break, Gregorio, you were talking about your Transformer toy, which brings uh, me to uh, a little excerpt I saw on your website, Here Lies the Truth. Uh, one of the it was about a young man, and he said he recalled writing in his notebook at an early age, "If you do not serve Jehovah, you will die." Um, 
it's very concerning to me when you hear these kind of things in the in the story that you told before the break. The the images, the thoughts that are put into such young minds, uh, is, is this common or something that is just maybe every now and then a, just a rare occurrence? Uh, common within the Jehovah's Witness religion or religion in general? Common with Jehovah's Witness. Oh, no, this is, that, that is not just common, it's standard. I mean, okay. the, the thing about children and religion, children have always historically been a great recruiting tool for religion uh, <laughs> because whether it's seeing the children uh, with the parents knocking on the door uh, selling the magazines or standing on the street corner there's something about trying to how should I say mold such a formative mind become a righteous loyal disciple and people find that uh, I think that they, they draw inspiration from that from from seeing uh, devoted children. It's, it's almost tantamount to something like Hitler Youth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. how that can resonate with adults, you know, just seeing, you know, the, the young vanguard uh, uh, coming up. So I think growing up, sitting in uh, Kingdom Hall, again, it could be five years old, six years old, I mean, you're hearing these, things being discussed, you're seeing the imagery, and it's not just doctrinal things that say, like, Armageddon, and if you don't serve Jehovah, you will die. I mean, there are things there that our children should not be exposed to, period. Once mm-hmm. we start talking about fornication or bestiality, hmm. uh, again, this is within the context of biblical stories, don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. they're not you know, just randomly talking about this, but I think that it's, it's not the appropriate forum for young minds, five, six years old, to be hearing about these things. So, yes, I mean, per that excerpt, there is the stuff that just, you know, scared the hell out of you as a little kid, where it's just like, you know, we will go around thinking, oh, don't do that, Joel, we'll see you. Oh, don't do that, because you're going to get destroyed in Armageddon if you do that. I remember <laughs> kids saying that, myself saying that, on on many occasions, because uh, they just instilled that sense of fear in you, uh, from as early an age as, as possible. So there was the doctrine, then there was the subject matter that, like I said, was just inappropriate for kids, then, of course, the imagery of, let's say, the wild uh, the wild beast or the, the whore of Babylon, and uh, just, again, things that uh, were very PC-13, borderline R-rated, that... Mm-hmm. as young as three or four years old are being exposed to five hours a week at the meetings. Wow. So it seems like it would make it difficult for a child in JW to have friends that were not in the organization because there's, there's going to be daily conflicting views uh, and mental challenges to have friends that are not Jehovah's Witnesses. Well, having associations outside of the religion were discouraged anyway. So this is the part where, um, you know, the word cult doesn't appear once in the movie. And I did that deliberately because I don't want the organization to scream persecution that Mm -hmm. we're calling them a dangerous cult. But a lot of their practices uh, can be very cult-like. And one of those is that sense of isolationism, where it's us versus them. And 
your salvation resides only within the church. And so growing up, we were told that we could not play with kids that were not witnesses. They were considered worldly. And mm-hmm. the same applies to adults. They were not allowed to have worldly friends, worldly associates. They couldn't just go out for a drink with a co-worker uh, or uh, even childhood friends uh, mm-hmm. just for the fact that uh, they were not a witness and you know, any association outside of the organization was uh, strictly prescribed. Hmm. So we, so it wasn't a matter of not having non-Jehovah's Witness friends because of any differences within our childhood. It's because we weren't allowed, period. Uh, okay, and that is something that is overtly or subtly preached in, in, in the religion then. Overtly, I, mean, I Over. think anyone raising anyone raising a religion will remember um, uh, the scripture. I think it was in Corinthians uh, about bad association, spoiling people's habits, and the way they distorted that scripture was basically to say that anything outside of the religion is a bad association. So, <laughs> I mean, it, so it, it, that includes, I mean. Obviously, there are bad people on the planet, but uh, bad associations. To have that apply to, let's say, four billion people, I mean, uh, that's a bit much. So, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> so mm-hmm. it could be anyone. We we're talking kindly old grandmothers. We're talking doctors. We're talking uh, nuns. I mean, they were all considered bad people, bad associations, people that could potentially uh, influence you and make you stray from what they call the truth, what they still call the truth, mm-hmm. um, meaning their religion. Well, it seems tricky to, to send your child off to school then uh, when you're trying to format their mind to accept only a certain philosophy and you're going to surround them on a day-to-day basis with people of a wide variety, a diversity of of mentalities, thought presses, and, and beliefs. Um you know, the, the mental, excuse me for a, a lack of a brainwashing, must be very strong to be able to send, you know, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12-year-olds to school and still they keep the Jehovah's Witness philosophy close at hand. Well, I, I think that was one of the reasons why they restructured the meeting schedule because oh. I, it, it wasn't always five days a week. Okay. Uh, I think there was a time when it was just once or maybe twice tops a week, but by having these meetings every couple of days that recharges that zealotry that people will okay. bring back to school or bring back to work, as opposed to just doing it on a Sunday and hoping that it carries over until the following Sunday. So that that was very deliberate on their part. I mean, the, the one president of the society, Rutherford, back in the 30s, he restructured it where it was very business-like, very corporate-like. And most of the meetings are tantamount to sales meetings. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, sales meetings is when you get together and you, you raise the collective energy of a group and everyone's on the same page and you form this, uh, this mastermind that, uh, uh, just influences the entire group. And that's exactly what was happening with each of these meetings. Gotcha. Now you just mentioned, um, leadership changed the meeting structure years ago um, I do want to touch on the fact that 
Jehovah's Witnesses over the years has been the has changed many of its philosophies, many of its yeah. um, practices. Um, me personally, I'm thinking you can only tell me that the world is going to end so many times, and, and I'm panicky, <laughs> and it, and it doesn't end. And I'm like, okay, well later, I'm not going to stick around for the next time you tell me this. Like, what is the what is the draw that keeps people to it? You know, after it so many times, you've been proven wrong. Like, no, that doesn't work. That didn't come true. You said this, and this didn't right. happen. I mean. What keeps people around? I mean, in such large numbers, because the membership is, like, vast. Right. I, I don't know. I For some, maybe it's a draw. I think for most, it's more of a restraint. It's more of a tether, uh, mm-hmm. meaning that they can't walk away from it. They invested too much. So mm-hmm. let's say in the case of my own mother, I mean, for the last 43 years, she's been, excuse me, for the last 40 years, 39 years, she's been... A witness. So, okay. and she has she has six kids, and so that's forty years times, let's say, six birthdays. So that's two hundred and forty occasions. Let's forget about Christmas and Thanksgiving and Halloween for now. Two hundred and forty occasions, thousands of memories, thousands of pictures where we didn't celebrate birthdays or just um, enjoy days secular celebratory family days that she deprived herself of. So now she's in her late 60s and uh, there has to be a payoff for a lifetime of sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And at that point, uh, and there's a lot of uh, aging witnesses who are estranged from their families. I, mean, I haven't spoken to my mother in several years now. Um, in fairness, not all of that is kind of adoptional stuff, but it's definitely compounded by it. And mm-hmm. they, for a lot of women, for a lot of families that have been estranged from their kids, that haven't uh, had any sort of relationship with kids or grandkids or extended families, that there, there has to be a payoff. There has to be something to account for those years, decades of sacrifice. And mm-hmm. I think for others, it comes down to, it's not even faith. I think it's more so vanity, where for a lot of people, it's hard to admit that, okay, all right, I got suckered, all right? I was in a very emotionally vulnerable place. Um, I was in a very desperate place. I was presented with this information, or maybe it's hard for them to admit that they were scared. I mean, in 1974, if you're told that, hey, the world was definitely going to end in 1975, which was one of the witnesses' failed predictions, then, all right, I mean, that, that might encourage some people to say, all right, well, let me get on board with this. Mm-hmm. Um, then once it didn't materialize, then yeah, you know, that for some people, uh, just speaking about 75 for a second, staying on 75, a lot of people left the organization right around then. Uh, okay. Other people, it was just too much for them to say that they were wrong or that they were duped, so they stayed with it. And the organization has a very clever way of, they never admit that they're wrong. They'll only admit that we have additional light or new light, hmm. as they refer refer to refer to it. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's it's a sense a, a very uh, clever way of manipulating people. And uh, amazing, right? And at the same time, um, relieving themselves of any culpability whatsoever when it comes to the consequences of these failed doctrines, because you know. 
again, with 75, a lot of people quit their jobs. They sold their homes. Um, they didn't go to school. And after 75 came and went, there they were, penniless, uh, prospectless, and just left scrambling, uh, trying hmm. to, uh, recover where they left off because of the failed doctrine. Mm-mm-mm. That is such a doozy. I mean, I mean, I gave up everything for you and, and this is where you've left me and okay, now we're just gonna, you know, alter the plan and now I'm gonna say this and I, I still want you to hang in there with me. I mean, that is so bodacious. Well, it's even worse than that because I think in, uh, one of their publications after the 75 thing came and went, again, they never admitted fault, uh, but they also, I think, went as far as, um, uh, criticizing the witnesses who did leave their jobs or sold their homes, saying that, well, you know, it's, uh, even though we expected, uh, major things to happen during this year, the Christian thing to do would have been to continue realizing your, uh, <laughs> worldly obligations, like paying your mortgage or mm-hmm. going, going to work. And I mean, I, I, had I been old enough back then, I would have been livid. <laughs> and, uh, wow. yeah, yeah. I mean, as I said, it's a very, very clever way that they have of always, um, uh, re- reassigning again. Well, actually, not even bringing up guilt or blame. It's always just new light. It's a, a policy change, basically. Cool stuff. Well, sir, hold on for me. It's time for another break. We'll be right back. Let's return to Don't Box Me In on TalkZone.com with your host, Lana Reed. Hello and welcome back. I'm having an interesting conversation today with Mr. Gregorio Smith about uh, the Jehovah's Witness Religion Organization. Um, and I had to cut you off real quick because we had break there and I, I just, this is so interesting. But um, before we were, we were talking about... Um, the, the different predictions that Jehovah's have made and they didn't mm-hmm. come to light and everything, uh, which I want to ask, there's a lot of debate, back and forth debate about whether uh, Jehovah Witness are actually Christians. And in your opinion, why the debate? Because they are working off the Bible, correct? Mm, this is true. I mean, they, but it's also their unique version of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, the New World Translation, where there's a lot of debate as to the veracity of the uh, translation of this Bible, how it it uh, suspiciously suits the witness doctrine, mm-hmm. whereas if you use a King James uh, Bible or uh, Vulgate and reference the same scriptures that the witnesses reference, uh, it will have a completely different meaning. So I think uh, they they say that they're Christian because... They follow the injunction of Christ to preach the good news throughout all the inhabited earth, and they do believe in Jesus. Uh, they don't believe Jesus is God, uh, mm-hmm. so I think that's one bone of contention with other uh, religions. But and doctrine, I mean, that's something that you know you can debate to your blue in the face. So uh, suffice to say that they are Christian, uh, but I will say that 
although, uh, or at least they contend that they're Christian, there are a lot of things that they do that are not very Christian-like, and I'm talking about with the fundaments of Christianity, um, which is where we're talking about unconditional love and mm-hmm. uh, charity and being good to others. I mean, they it, it sounds good, but there isn't that follow-through within the organization because of some of their harsher policies. Got you. Understood. Now, which brings me to another point in my research for today's interview. I stumbled across an article by a uh, Dr. Jerry Bergman. And in the article, he came to the conclusion that although JW leadership is uh, predominantly white, its membership is mostly minorities, lower income, and has lower numbers of college-educated members. Um, do you think his findings are correct or or not? Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, just take a look at where the witnesses are now. I mean, they try, they've been trying to make inroads in, uh, rural communities in Africa and in China and, uh, still going strong in South America. The thing is, is that historically, and we're talking 2000 years ago, uh, going back to, let's say, the Crusades, um, that uh, they religion has always attracted the weak and the desperate. Mm-hmm. So who, who's more weak <laughs> and desperate than poor minorities, whether they be in the inner city or in uh, rural communities uh, across the world? So I I completely agree, or I can uh, understand how he came to those findings. Got you. And it, it seems just off the top, you know, that JW is a design to keep its membership poor and, and not becoming affluent. Because if I have to spend so much time with this, how can I get a job or, or go to school to better myself and to provide for my family? It just seems like I'm going to stay in a certain economic spot being involved with the organization. Oh, absolutely. And I, it suits it suits their purposes to keep people poor and uh, may sound a bit harsh, but ignorant in terms mm-hmm. of not going to school and uh, developing their own critical thinking skills or coming upon information that may uh, contradict or challenge witness doctrine. I mean, they want to keep people in a box. And I was just thinking uh, during the break about the title of your show, uh, Don't Box Me In, is it? Mm-hmm. Right. That it's it's interesting because within the movie, uh, we had a, a virtual kingdom hall set up, and the kingdom halls were basically these large windowless boxes that we mm-hmm. sat in every Tuesday night and uh, every Sunday morning for these two-hour meetings. And in the movie, I wanted people to feel to feel that claustrophobia of mm-hmm. being in the box, not only physically, uh, visually, because in the movie, like, the walls actually move and you can feel the box shrinking around people. Mm-hmm. But uh, So not only physically, but also spiritually, where they said that mental, uh, that intellectual intimidation, where it's just hammered into you, you know, Jehovah, 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 you know, 
if you don't serve Jehovah, you will die. I mean, it, it, it was such a such a cudgel that they beat you over with, basically, at every meeting. That uh, I, I I wanted people to that didn't weren't raised and that to walk away from the movie feeling that feeling that sense of being trapped inside of a box, trapped and abused inside that box, no less. Mm-hmm. Now let's talk about Truth Be Told. How did how is it that the movie came about? It seems like a very, you were opening up a, a can of worms. <laughs> well, one, there, there isn't another Jehovah's Witness documentary out there like it. In fact, there aren't a lot of documentaries out there like it. Because this is the first one that's actually critical of the organization. Uh, there is one other documentary called Knocking, but on balance, people feel that that was uh, painted uh, a bit too favorable mm-hmm. in the image of the organization, and one person suggested to me that uh, through their research they discovered that a couple of rich Jehovah's Witnesses actually bankrolled a portion of the movie. So that explains the less than critical voice mm-hmm. with that movie. So uh, to answer your question directly, however, I about three years ago I was thinking about what our next project is going to be because uh, Smithcraft, we do commercial work, uh, which funds a lot of the original creative work, like uh, documentaries. So I was thinking about the project, and my business partner and uh, lifelong best friend uh, suggested, like, hey, why don't you do a documentary about the, the witnesses? And at the time, I was thinking, like, well, why would I want to do that? I mean, I went <laughs> in there from that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to relive any of that. Mm-hmm. But then the more that I did some research and I saw... Like hundreds, if not thousands, of YouTube uh, videos and testimonials, people relating their story. I realized that there there hadn't been uh, an organized effort to collect some of these stories. I mean, with with my movie, I don't presume to tell the entire story. No one has a monopoly on the truth. Everyone just has their part of it. So, mm-hmm. you know, I will encourage anyone else to go out there. Maybe they can make their own. Uh, <laughs> movie about the, their Jehovah's Witness experience. Um, but we decided to go ahead with this, and we started just asking around, uh, finding people to interview, and we screened hundreds of people. I mean, literally former JWs, current JWs, Bethelites who are uh, the elite within the organization, and uh, we whittled all that down to uh, the six people who appear in the movie. Mm-hmm. So uh, production-wise, it took about two and a half years to do the interviews, then a lot of the post-production work, uh, the graphics and the sound editing and the scoring. And uh, so we're pretty much in our third year of production now, and it's all about the marketing and the... Uh, distribution of the movie now, so which is pretty much on par with documentary films. Documentary films generally take about, feature documentaries anyway, take about two years to produce, then you figure another year to market, so we're, we're right on par. Okay, okay. And real quickly before we go to our last break, um, I'm assuming when you put out this movie, uh, the organization or people in the organization uh, might have had some commentary or were not didn't take too favorably to it? Uh, actually, just the opposite. There was okay. a heat from high command. 
they they know all too well that any protest that they might raise will only publicize the movie. So it was a very strategic decision on their part to keep quiet. And I even reached out to them directly to tell them I was making the movie. Uh-huh. And a year and a half later, tell them the movie was completed. And if they would like to see it, I want to challenge any of it, uh, fact check any of it, that they are more than welcome. And I was told directly through their PR people that this is something that they are not interested in. And then mm. they hung up on me. Hmm. Well, that's kind of arrogant there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, you no figure, comment. you know, at least tell, let me tell my side of the story. If you're going to say all this, at least let me tell my side of the story. But, you know, you're one guy and they have seven something million members. So why would they really be concerned? I guess, suppose. But, you know, well, you well, just quick, like somebody quick, to say something. Sure. And quickly, I'd like to say that I people ask me, well, this isn't balanced because you don't interview any active witnesses. I tried, mm-hmm. but no one, everyone was too scared to appear on camera. Uh, even one that I had lined up who I promised I would uh, shoot them in silhouette and obscure their voice, they agreed, but then they backed out at the last minute because they mm. were scared of the repercussions, uh, blowback from their family or the organization that they found that they participated in it. Amazing. Well, sir, we're going to take our last break of the day and uh, hang in there with me. I'll be right back. You're listening to Don't Box Me In on TalkZone.com. Here's Lana Reed. Welcome back. Welcome back. We are talking about Jehovah's Witness today with Mr. Gregorio Smith. And uh, before the break, we were talking about his movie, Truth Be Told. Now, where is the next place uh, somebody can catch the movie, the film? Uh, yes, where there's going to be a screening in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, I believe that's October 23rd, so in about two weeks. Okay. Then... Right after that, there's a screening in Atlanta, Georgia, October 29th. And I think I just got word back that there's going to be a screening in Washington, D.C., scheduled for November 14th. So okay. all this part of a, a, nas- a national theatrical tour, raising awareness and the pedigree of the movie. I mean, the goal ultimately is to have uh, limited... Uh, theatrical engagements, then expanding the release, uh, all in pursuit of, as I said, the ultimate distribution goal of getting it out on cable television, network television, DVD, and video on demand, like Netflix. Gotcha. Now, how does somebody request that the movie come to their city? That's a great question. Uh, there's two ways. I mean, People, one, people have just requested it directly on Facebook. Okay. Like, hey, come to Vegas, come to New, okay. New Mexico, come to wherever. I mean, our Facebook page is uh, facebook.com slash truth, or they contact us on our website, www.healizethetruth.com. However, uh, through this theatrical facilitator that we've been working with, TUG uh, Incorporated, that's T-U-G-G Incorporated, mm-hmm. If they go to that website, tug.com, they can click on Truth Be Told and request their own screening uh, okay. within the neighborhood. So they don't, uh, people don't even have to go through us. 
to request screening. If they can get enough people together, whether it's a ex-Jehovah's Witness meetup group or maybe it could be a secular, atheist, free thinker group in a certain area, so long as they can get a minimum number of people required together, uh, anyone can request the screening. Okay. And is do we have to have a minimum number of people for screening? That is correct. And it's okay. also at no risk that they can do this. But okay. They can set it up. And if they don't meet that minimum number, then there's no out-of-pocket cost or anything. But it would behoove them to do the uh, pound the payment and try to get as many people together as possible first to commit to it before going through the process of res- res- uh, creating a, excuse me, reserving a screening. Gotcha. Now, you, you mentioned your Facebook page. That's a, an option for, um, I guess, people who want to share their stories about their experience with the religion as well? That is correct. They be a, we receive hundreds of uh, testimonials, people sharing their witness experience. Um, 99%, 99.9% negative. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. honest, don't get me wrong, but I'm mm-hmm. saying that it wasn't the most pleasant experiences <laughs> to have that 0.01% of people who, who would chime in and say that, hey, you're all just a bunch of angry, bitter people. I love being a Jehovah's Witness. There's nothing better than this, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. So we, we do get one or two of those as well. And so if not through Facebook, people also have submitted their stories through our the main website, herelizethetruth.com. There's a uh, function there to share your story. And I got to tell you, a lot of them have been really heart-wrenching. Mm. I mean, a, a much more heart-wrenching than some of the stories that you hear in the movie because the people that I chose, I they're, they're giving you just a pretty balanced uh, historical understanding of what it was like being raised a witness. But there mm-hmm. are some people out there with horror stories about mm-hmm. losing, losing their children uh, because the organization forbade them to... Uh, give a new board of blood transfusion or uh, people that haven't spoken to their uh, parents or grandparents for decades. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's people who are, who are shunned, established from the organization and basically lost all family and friends and uh, went into a downward spiral of alcohol and drugs and sex and I mean, it's it's really harsh. I mean, suicide. I mean, I, I received so many letters about people who committed suicide, whether it was uh, their attempts or people that they knew who committed suicide because they just didn't see any other way to cope. And mm-hmm. it, it, it's harsh. So I think the movie provides, a, as I said, a historical understanding uh, as to why uh, now... Uh, there is this disproportionate amount of mental illness uh, with mm-hmm. Jehovah's Witnesses as opposed to other religions. Also why there is a, they also have like the highest abandonment rate. Like you mentioned before about their numbers, um, 7 million, 7.5 million worldwide. But they also, uh, 63% of people who are raised in the religion leave it once they become mm-hmm. an adult. You know, so they have like the lowest retention rate of, uh, world religions as well and i think that the movie explains exactly why uh that is Mm. so tell me this now um today where you're at uh where are you at with jehovah's witness because you 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 say your mother's still um Mm -hmm. involved 
um, from our conversation, I hear that there's, I hear touches of a lot of pain still. Um, but even in the bad, there has to be some good with the organization. Um, so perspective-wise, where are you at? Uh, regarding the organization or my own outlook on faith? Uh, Jehovah's Witness. Jehovah's yeah, Witness. I mean, that, artistically, I mean, the, the greatest reward is just finishing something. So mm-hmm. I started this project. I went through the vagaries of producing a movie, and now it's done. So there is that reward. I still have a job to do in terms of getting it fully distributed, but I'm happy with the product. Um, as far as the witnesses themselves, I mean, they're, I'm going to be dealing with things every day for the rest of my life. I mean, obviously, I don't think I'll ever become a witness again, but mm-hmm. every day there are triggers that I can attribute back to my my witness upbringing and it's just a matter of having the mental discipline to control how I react to these triggers so uh, if I saw a witness on the street and I often do because I still live in Brooklyn and they're they're heavy there mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I could be approached by someone like hey good evening sir or good afternoon sir can I offer you some reading material today and as much as I have to say about the religion <laughs> and my experience uh, usually uh, my response is, uh, no, thank you. Have a good day. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the extent of my engagement with uh, witnesses these days. Okay. Do you ever foresee a point where your relationship with your mother will be mended, or is it just going to be what it is? <laughs> it's interesting that you use that ex- uh, uh, that expression partially, because uh, someone in the movie who said that he hadn't spoken to his parents in over, I think, 15 years now, Mm-hmm. He, he gave up all hope. Like it's just, it is what it is. You know, mm-hmm. I want to like to uh, engage and have a relationship that is just not possible. That some parents are just so far gone. As I said, it could be out of vanity because they already gave up so much that they can't reverse course now, or it could be out of actual devotion, like they actually believe this. So I would like to have a relationship with my mother, especially if I some point uh, have a family of my own and you know have, have let her have a little bit of that joy in her life of being a cozy center of love <laughs> and family with grandkids and all that but I'm not holding my breath and mm. I have no satisfaction in saying that either it's just uh, the stark reality of the situation okay painfully understood painfully understood um, well, um, always my hours go by so fast, and we are at the end of another hour here. Um, yeah, wow, that did go by. I know, I know, right? It always goes so quick. Uh, my guest today has been Director Gregorio Smith. Please, please, please check out the website, herelliesthetruth.com, for more info on the film and other info on Jehovah's Witnesses. Gregorio, I thank you for allowing me to share time and space with you today, and I wish you much success on your film and other ventures. Thank you so much, Lana. Same to you. No problem. Well, that's all for this week's show. I'll be back next week at the same time. Until then, remember when it comes to your dreams, the words can't and won't should never slow you down. There's always space to change and to grow. Don't be boxed in. Live your very best life. I'm your host, Lana Reed, and you can visit my website, lanareed.com. Until next time, I look forward to connecting with you. <laughs>